It's no secret that customers expect the best experience from every business, including yours. Whether it's with customer support, sales, or everything in between, Zendesk products help give your customers the experience they deserve. Better yet, qualifying startups can join the Zendesk for Startups program and get Zendesk products free for six months. That's all of Zendesk, free for six months. Win on every channel with the Zendesk for Startups program. Visit zendesk.com equity to claim your free six months of Zendesk. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined this week by Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, how are you? It's going well out here in Brooklyn. Uh, the zombies haven't attacked yet, but we still have rice available. Uh, I'll take the kind of plus one, minus one. Uh, we also had Natasha. She's back with us this week. Tosh, how are you doing? I'm good. I washed my hands to podcast, so that's where I'm at mentally right now. <laughs> that's a bit extra, but I like the effort. Um, also, you are in charge of bringing in our guest this week. So who is joining us on the show? Yes, we have someone super exciting joining us, Manan Mehta from Unshackled VC. For those of you who don't know, Unshackled is a venture capital firm that was kind of born on the thesis of investing in immigrant entrepreneurs. And it kind of came out the gate last year with a 20 million debut fund. And yeah, Manan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for, for having us, uh, having me on the, on the podcast. Excellent. And uh, as a small note, we spend a lot of time trying to get audio quality to be as good as it can. But instead of me being in SF this week and all of us in the studio, because of COVID-19, we are all doing this remotely, and so we are making do as best we can. So we'll be back to 100% audio quality as soon as we can all be back in the same room. But until then, as we have guests, we will be doing our best. All right. Now, enough of all that. Let's get into the news. And we're starting this week with some venture capital rounds that we could not not talk about. And we have HashiCorp, and Danny is going to tell us what's up. Danny. Yeah, so HashiCorp, complicated company, enterprise infrastructure, DevOps tools. So, so the best way to think of HashiCorp is sort of the way you operate your cloud infrastructure if you're in a multi-cloud, public cloud, private cloud, legacy cloud environment. I don't want to get into the details, but the exciting part of the company is that it raised a massive round, almost certainly before COVID-19 sort of spread around the world. So it raised $175 million from Franklin Templeton Investments at a $5 billion plus valuation. So it is a semi-demicorn or a decacorn or a semi-decacorn. So, well, we will save the, the the naming for later. What's nuts is that, you know, obviously this probably closed a couple of weeks ago. They officially announced it this week. But but that number is is crazy, right? Like we've looked at SaaS revenue multiples over the last two, three weeks just, just get hammered. And it looks like HashiCorp beat the rush, so to speak, to the markets just in the nick of time. I have a question about this, which is you said around 5 billion. Are, do we not know? Is it like 5.2 or is it 5? It's 5.2, I believe. 5.2. Okay. So just over 5 billion, not just below. Just over 5 billion. Okay. Fantastic. And then an official semi decacorn. An official, it's semi decacorn plus, I think actually it's a little bit there over you go. the mark. <laughs> plus, plus, exactly. Um, so we have some revenue growth notes on this, Danny, doubling revenues and customers every year for four straight years. Do we have any idea about the scale of this thing? Because now I'm curious how it's currently valued against revenue. Uh, they didn't disclose revenues, so they are not oh. necessarily an official member of your ARR, 100 million ARR club. They are in the repeatedly doubled revenues from undisclosed numbers club, which is a lot less exciting. Four years is a lot, though. So, Manan, question for you about startups that, that grow really fast. How many companies out of like 100 startups can grow 2x every single year for four years consecutively? That strikes me as quite a feat, really. It's, it's a feat, but you got to also remember where we're starting. If we're starting at $10 in revenue, it's not so hard. 
So I think the reality is you got to look at businesses that are direct-to-consumer versus enterprise. And, and you never know, right? One, one contract with a major Fortune 500 company may give you all the lift that you want, but it also may put a lot of pressure on doubling that number again. And right. so th- there's a lot of nuance in this. And so I, I do find it interesting that, that when we report out that we've grown 4X year over year, I, I always am skeptical like you probably are in the media where you go, all right, well, are we talking about 2 million in revenue now? Or are we talking about 200 million in revenue now? They're very different. Um, and mm-hmm, I think we've mm-hmm. also seen VCs have been prone to overvaluing companies as related to public markets. It's been probably more apparent in the last month. Yes. But nevertheless, look, I think it's, it's a fun little time that we're hopefully getting to truth in numbers at some point. I mean, I'm a former investment banker, so I can appreciate where comparable comps and precedent transactions uh, should be respected and maybe aren't always in venture. Well, talking about new customers, I mean, Alex, I think you were rushing right before we launched to talk about Slack. Slack had some big news that they just dropped on the public markets. Yeah. So actually, Tosh and I uh, were actually nearly late to record this today because we ran across a Slack. Uh, what was it, Tosh? An 8K, I think it was? Yeah. So they ha- they added on 7,000 customers in seven weeks. And that compares to, I believe, in the preceding quarter, them adding a total of 5,000 customers. So pretty wild. And we looked at the file and thought about the potential reasons why. Do you think it's important to note that Slack d- did a blog post saying that while people are working from home, we're not seeing an increase in usage necessarily because people are always on Slack, even if they're in the office. So I, I thought that it might be due to like the use cases coming out of everyone being like socially distant. Well, I mean, Slack is saying that people that were using Slack are using it about the same amount, which I totally agree, Tosh. It makes perfect sense. But we were curious, you know, will this remote work boom have kind of boosted Slack's ability to take its new free users that were joining and kind of monetize them? And in their last earnings report, Danny, as I'm sure you recall, Slack said, look, usage is up, but we're not sure on the revenue front. And then today, if you're not watching the high, you know, hashtag tech drama, Microsoft Teams dropped this you know, news item that they had 44 million DAUs now for Teams, which competes with Slack. So Slack turned around and dropped this new, well, we got 7K new customers. And so now everyone's <laughs> just having a pissing match. And it's a complete delight as a reporter because there's just tons of stuff to write about. But we were almost late. But one more thing on HashiCorp, Danny, if they are at a $5 billion valuation, presumably they didn't go from 2 to $8 million. They're much larger than that. No, right? I think I think they're at a very hefty, uh, you know, the, the focus for that announcement was they actually replaced the CEO. So the two founders who were there, who I believe were actually immigrants, who sort of on, on message with, with Unshackled, but, you know, they, they replaced the CEO back in, in 2016 with David uh, McJanet, who was an EIR at Greylock and informally in a variety of enterprise positions before that. And so, you know, not only are they doubling revenues, but they're doubling customers, hot space, and, and HashiCorp is really strategic in the sense that it doesn't assume one sort of cloud architecture. This is why it's very popular. If you want to use Amazon and Google and as your plus your own cloud, plus all of your boxes that are still stored in the data center in Utah, which you might actually really appreciate in a, in a COVID-19 world, HashiCorp is the only thing that can kind of synchronize all those infrastructure pieces together in one package. One note I also wanted to make, something that you actually made in Slack earlier this week, Danny, which was that these rounds... Um, especially like the good news rounds that we're seeing can't necessarily directly be equated to the pandemic or not, because oftentimes these rounds are closed so much earlier in terms of announcing good news during a bad news time. I thought that that was important to note, too, that it's not like they, you know, rush to get this done due to anything that's happening around us right now. 
No, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the, the distance between like when a funding closes and when it gets announced, you know, shrinks as it gets later and later stage. It's harder to keep a massive round, like $175 million totally. private for a long period of time. So my guess is, is this closed probably January, February, might have only been a few weeks ago, right? Whereas some of the seed rounds we're hearing about might have been as much as a year ago. And, uh, you know, again, it's like it just shows how much the market has changed when the multiples like 5.1 billion would not have probably we may not have even covered it two, three weeks ago because of the <laughs> amount of funding so announcements <laughs> that were coming by. But now it was like one of the you know, you reached out to me earlier today and you're like, who's raised a lot of money? And I was like, there's one there's one <laughs> company like, that's it. raised a lot of I'll money. So it. let's do it. Uh, but it's not the only enterprise company that's doing well. I, I believe we covered another one at the, the Series A, Alex. Is that correct? Yeah, so we grabbed DeepGram this week, and this is a company I have known about for about four years. I'd never, I think, written about it before this week. It raised a $12 million Series A is kind of the big news item. But a friend of mine had done some consulting work for them way back in the day when they were like six people. So I had gotten this really weird window into this company, and he was like, they're so smart, they're so cool. And I was like, all right, all right, cool, whatever. And then I forgot about it for a while. And then they come back into my life, and I'm like, well, where have you been? Because you were doing stuff, you know, four years ago. DeepGram is a company that did two experiments to get to where it is today. They spent two years working on building a deep learning based speech recognition tool. And so they spent literally two years just working on the tech to see if they could build this thing. They call it the experiment on the product side. Then they spent two years trying to figure out if they had a market for this. Was there going to be a market for enterprise speech recognition, a customer base, a place to sell into? Answer, yes. So now they raised 12 million and they're going to go forth to market, hire some more engineers, um, build up their go-to-market function and kind of grow this product. It's neat for a couple of reasons. Uh, you can host DeepGram on your own metal or DeepGram has their own servers. NVIDIA is part of the round, for example, not hard to see why because they build hardware people use in AI style applications. And, you know, I've been keeping an eye on the AI market, frankly, and uh, how strong it is financially. There's been some kind of kerfuffling in the VC community about AI margins. And they said, uh, DeepGram, that by hosting their own stuff on their own you know, infrastructure, they can have pretty attractive economics. So I know that was a bit nerdy, but it's a round that I thought was super exciting and kind of cool. But pivoting away from my monologue here, back to our guest, I'm curious what you're seeing in the market about AI styled startups, because two years ago, it was all we got pitched, mm -hmm. right? And then it became cannabis startups, I think after that. <laughs> but, but, you know, are these companies that were claiming AI a few years ago growing into that mantle? Are they performing as they promised and have they kind of lived up to their own potential? Yeah, look, I mean, we just had a company that announced a $12.5 million Series A, Lily AI, that was led by Kanan. That round literally closed December 31st. And I'll tell you this candidly, we are very happy that that round closed before the turn of the year. It's, and it's not so much that things may have not happened, is that it positioned the company in a really great place to capitalize on a lot of the talent that's becoming available slowly and steadily in the market. And that's a company that was doing psychographics, emotional intelligence for retailers and e-commerce companies, which is going through a bit of a, a come to Jesus moment right now, right? Because you, you can't really go into the, into the store. So if you don't know how to provide that, that experience online, that's an experiential commerce brand has built their DNA around your Parkers, your, uh, your Allbergs or your anyone that Forerunner's backed <laughs> by and large, you, you're in deep, deep trouble, right? And so what we actually have always thought about was AI. It's got to be applied AI, meaning also recognizing that if you don't have a service element to your AI, it doesn't really need to exist because the sales cycle of selling AI is just as long as any enterprise solution, but the expectations of AI is full automation. And so all of a sudden, when you productize AI, people don't want to pay you for a service. And so that was one of the biggest misgivings of AI the last three years is that 
customers would be pitched this idea of AI, founders would try to just sell it for free or try to do these, these smaller revenue contracts when the reality was that they would be spending a lot of time servicing their customers because everyone wants their edge cases addressed, right? The promise mm -hmm. of AI is that there's never any human intervention. That's just not true. And so I think what, you've, what we've kind of seen is that when it's applied, when it's solving an acute pain point and the company can figure out that this is actually worth a million dollars a year from their, from their enterprise customer, now it makes sense because now you can service that customer with margin. On the service point, by bringing humans into the equation, you lower the effective gross margins of that revenue, right? And so it becomes less attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, look, make sure I, think, I, had, that, I had that right. Yeah. And, and, and I think we, we as an industry need to recognize that service revenue is not a bad thing. You know, I'll, I'll be very honest. Like, enterprise companies know how to value people's time. They tend to undervalue product. The moment you say it comes out of the box and it works for you, we're not the farm industry where we get a charge for R&D work from the last 15 years and now maintain price. It doesn't work. And so this is what I, I try to encourage a lot of our founders in that if you are technically brilliant and you have something somebody else wants, make sure they know how to value your time. What, whatever you do behind the scenes to automate it, that's your job, right? Mm. Increase your margin by automating what you're doing behind the scenes. But the customer still feels they're getting both the product and the service and they're willing to pay you for it. That's how you maximize your margin. And, and you go, you know, not from 10% margins to 50% margins. You may not be at 90%, the days of optimizely and, and everything else that came out. Those just don't really work as much anymore. Mm. Well, it's, it's a continuing point of conversation that we're not done with on equity that we're going to touch back on a little bit, but we're going to drop the VC stuff for a second, talk about an acquisition, an ed tech deal Danny, that I actually missed this week. So I'm kind of curious to hear about what's up with Teachable. I, 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 yes, coronavirus is sort of dominating the headlines, but there was actually an amazing kind of accident in the, the ed tech space. So Teachable is a New York City-based startup founded, I believe, in uh, 2012 or uh, 2013. So it, it's been a, a long road. The company, you know, is basically the Shopify for teachers. So if you want to build a virtual classroom for your own classes, your own courses, it not only includes sort of the, the e-commerce part of that, so actually buying the courses, but also includes discussion forums and other features to actually connect with students and build them onto the platform. Over the last couple of years, Teachables had enormous GMV growth. So unlike HashiCorp, where it's just sort of vaguely relativistic, we actually know Teachables numbers from four of the last five years. So in, in the last year, in 2019, they actually had a quarter billion dollars of GMV. In 2018, they had a little bit uh, towards 175 million. In 2017, they had 90 million. So they've been mm. on this really strong trajectory. And this week, we found out that the company was acquired by Amsterdam headquartered e-commerce education company Hotmart, which you may not have heard unless you're in the sort of Portuguese or Spanish language market. So they actually dominate it's a very specific category, but they basically dominate the uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, Spanish edtech market. And so there's a nice symmetry between Teachable, which is focused on um, English language learners, and, and Hotmart, which has this sort of domination in Brazil, in, in Spain, in Portugal, and other countries. We weren't able to get an official call on the valuation, but from what I heard from industry sources, there's around a quarter billion dollars. Okay. Now, edtech is something that I know nothing about. Tosh, I'm kind of curious because you're our early stage set of eyes here. Yeah. Um, what's going on in ed tech at the earlier stages? Are we seeing uh, a number of companies growing in that space or is it quieter as a part of the startup world? Yeah, so to totally contradict my point earlier, which is that what's happening right now is not impacting everything <laughs> right away, ed tech startups are finding uptick in usage and th that usage hopefully turning into paying customers. 
down the road. So when I saw this, when I was prepping for the podcast, I was like, okay, this makes so much sense. I'm not even going to blink an eye. Like, and I think it's really smart for a English-based program to combine with a program that has roots all over the world because I think teachers are really looking, teachers and schools are looking for a turnkey solution at this point. It just made a lot of sense to me in terms of how much people are relying on ed tech. And if they weren't before, at least they're open to hearing more. I wonder if this is going to help smaller ed tech companies that are, you know, that are hoping to grow their user base and maybe weren't growing as fast as they wanted to. Well, here's an opportunity. The whole world just stopped going to school at once. Like this is, should be sadly, but also happily for them, kind of a golden moment. You know, yesterday, Alex and I hosted uh, Nico Bonazzas, who's a managing director at uh, General Catalyst for an Extra Crunch conference call. And one of the things he focused on was homeschooling, right? Which has had a lot of investment over the last couple of years for the homeschool movement. But now everyone is a homeschool parent, right? Every, you know, schools are closed nationwide, globally in the UK and in Italy. Um, And so suddenly parents are figuring out how do you actually get education materials? How do you actually build a curriculum? How do you keep them on track? How do you get the tutoring resources you need online? All of a sudden, EdTech, which went from kind of this backwater, I think, for a lot of Silicon Valley investors, is now front of mind. Yeah. And one anecdote on that, too, is just with Nico mentioned this, too, in terms of homeschooling and its reputation in the States, that also might be changing since it's not as widely adopted as it is in other countries around the world. Got an email from Coursera yesterday, and I was wondering why that impacts me and what coronavirus-related announcement they had, but it was just more resources. So um, you're definitely seeing it across the bar. Manan, uh, what were you about to say? Yeah, the, the one thing I can tell you is we, we have, uh, like you guys are talking about, we have, we have an investment in the early, early stage, investment in ed tech in a company called Career Karma that is literally identifying coding boot camps for people that want to kind of modernize their skill set into the market. And I was catching up with the founder and CEO yesterday and I'll be honest with you, they've built a very operationally sound business, but they're seeing a massive growth in their user base. So it's, it's a lot of the cases where, you know, education is something we all continually need. The medium in which is, we've, we're consuming it now has obviously changed, given that the fact that in California, we may not see kids go back to school the rest of the year. And so I think we're going to keep on seeing an investment from from investors as well as from entrepreneurs into how do you actually make the education experience as comprehensively productive as you would in the classroom. And so I just give you an anecdote. I mean, literally the company is seeing their best month over month in the last three months. And, and that's, that's the indicator of something that's changing. Right. And I think that's really exciting. I keep trying to have us not talk about COVID-19 for like a five minute block of the show. And then every time I think we're going to start that, we go right back to it. So uh, I, <laughs> That's I guess why I... I talk about enterprise cloud infrastructure. I mean, you know, if, if you're tired of the boringness of, of COVID news, uh, that'll put you right to sleep as well. No, but in the middle of that segment on HashiCorp, you pivoted to the Slack story, which is driven by COVID-19. It is your fault, sir, that we didn't have Boom. a break from the thing. Um, okay, enough of that. Uh, we're going to keep talking about COVID-19, sadly, and we're going to riff a little bit on uh, founders because uh, behind every company is one, two, three, four, five, six people that are building this from the ground up, and they undergo more stress than really anyone else that I know. And some VCs are contracting help, Tosh, and they're working with a company called Atlas about this. And I read your story, and I want you to tell us what you saw and what's being done. Yeah, so I have been tracking trends of early stage investors kind of adopting services, both for differentiation and just to help competitive nature to get into deals. And that also has led me onto like the small but growing cohorts of VC firms that are thinking about things other than um, providing capital to founders. So uh, I saw this group therapy 
notice for a number of VC firms that are trying to help extend mental health services to their founders. So I'll just name off a couple of the firms that are starting to add group therapy to their portfolio companies. So we have Primary VC, Courage and Ventures, SoGal Ventures, Sparrow Ventures, Lerahipo, and Crosscut Ventures. They're all working with this company, Atlas, which was spun out of Alpha Bridge VC to help have founder specialized therapy for any of the woes that founders feel when they're starting the company, building the company, et cetera, et cetera. Atlas kind of gone on the record with TechCrunch to tell us that they're about to double their revenue this year due to an increase of business that they've attributed to the specific struggles that founders are going to face due to COVID-19. And I just thought that was important to note. I do want to add a nuance that it's not licensed psychologists. So it is life coaches. And I want to just make that differentiation clear as well. What's a life coach? Does anyone, can anyone explain that to me? I've always been curious. Yeah. So the way that they describe life coaches is that their network of people that are giving advice that are going to be helping these founders through this tough time are people from people who have left startups and who have been, had that burnout story, but then had an impact story come out of it kind of paraphrasing what the founder of Atlas was telling me. So it's not people that have, you know, been trained necessarily or have a degree. One of them does, but not all of them have degrees. So it's kind of people who have been on the battlefield and can share personal experience in that way. So on the topic of what could drive this kind of stress, we have been seeing more layoffs in the last couple of days. I think we've all been tracking this as a kind of a national story. But Tosh, you had some notes in in the doc today about some startups that are undergoing layoffs. I was curious if you could run us through those numbers pretty quick. Yeah, so I have one startup called Remote Year. It basically connects people who want to travel the world while re- while working and helps them make that a reality. So they charge around 2000 to 3000 a month to, and it includes accommodation, it includes transit and amenities and activities. So they laid off 50% of their staff announced yesterday by the founder Greg Kaplan. He got on the phone with me this morning to tell me, you know, how difficult that decision was and also how they are going to be connecting those people that laid off to hopeful jobs because they do have an in-house function already that connects at once it was customers with remote jobs and now it'll be former employees. So that was a very clear example of an industry hit by this pandemic, the travel industry and the people that are um, that want to run around the world can no longer due to this. Yeah. Manan, I'm curious um, how much stress you're seeing among early stage startups in the market. I think everyone's kind of looking around for cracks in the armor. And I'm curious if you've seen any of that or if people are, are reasonably well capitalized and therefore not too concerned about short term shocks. Yeah, I think the the audience is probably more stressed out are those that have burn rates of half a million or more uh, a month because um, you know they're heavily reliant on venture capital funding. And a lot of those VCs that back them are, are the, the quarter billion or more funds. And I think they're they're going to have to have a, a coming as well and which ones they want to continually back. At the earlier stage, the preceding seed, we're, we're very fortunate, right? I think not to make this an infomercial about unshackled, but... We, we back immigrant entrepreneurs, right? Immigrants have been through some adversity in their life. And while it's not a, a badge or distinction or honor, this adversity is no different than what they may be seeing in their life well before this day. And so what we kind of notice is, you know, we had about six companies in the portfolio that I would put at a red health um, score, which is six months or less of runway. This was as of two months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we started talking to them at the early onset of, some of the COVID-19 cases in Seattle. And what we learned was that five of them had term sheets signed or being signed. So far, 
two this week are getting signed and, and money's coming in. So again, I think this goes back to some fundamental elements of building a business, which is try to build it as fast as possible on the back of customer revenue, not the backs of VCs. And you, you tend to be a little bit more equipped for down markets. But that said, look, I, I think it's the, the challenges are real. If you're hemorrhaging cash, if you got 50 to 100 employees, you're probably not, not going to have that employee count by the time Q2 ends. It's just not likely unless you've got a customer willing to pay you today. And that stress is real. And I've talked to a bunch of our limited partners about this who are later stage investors. And I know, you know they're candidly saying their portfolios are a mess. They're getting 100 to 200 emails a day asking for more money. That's, that's a rough situation and something that um, I, I think is, you know, shout out to the guys at AlphaBridge and Gal, Gal at AlphaBridge for doing this. Howie, Carrie, and, and Jake, it's, it's because they realize that those founders are really unprepared for mm. what they're about to do. And it's, it's people's lives. There's expectant mothers that they have to let go. There's people whose family they send money back to in, in foreign countries. There's a lot of personal stories here. And, and I think that's, that's not changing anytime soon. Okay. Well, that was worse than I thought it was going to be, to be totally honest. I didn't realize that so many kind of like middle to late stage companies were kind of panicking that much because there's been so much capital raised in my back of my mind. I, I may have overestimated how wealthy some of these companies were in a cash sense. Maybe perhaps they were running higher burn rates than I kind of anticipated. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'll go back to the, the example you started with the Slack versus the Microsoft Teams. The one question I would like to ask you guys, I had to look at the 8K is what Slack's balance sheet looking like? Microsoft's got $100 billion, right? Uh, right? And, I, and I think there's a cost of acquisition that not all companies can afford. And so this is where VCs have to figure out which ones they want to give kind of the, the extended runway to so they don't come back to market in 2020 at all. And then which ones they unfortunately say, hey, maybe you should look at our other portfolio companies to join forces, or maybe you should you know, make some harder decisions. That's just going to happen. It was probably due to happen a while ago. Um, but again, I feel very fortunate where, you know, I talked about Lily AI, they just raised their money, they closed their capital, their breaks in line with their, um, their capital. And immigrants uh, are just have a different, by and large, tenacity around this situation. You get several points for not quoting the Hamilton line about immigrants and getting the job done. So, so well done. Immigrants, uh, but- <laughs> they get the job done. There you go, Tosh. There, there it is. <laughs> well, I will say, do do a terrible plug, but uh, uh, next week on Extra Crunch, we've actually gotten so many requests from immigrants about advice around H-1Bs, like what, what does the future mean, that we ha- do have our immigrant uh, immigration lawyer columnist, Sophie Alcorn, on a live conference call, I believe. I think we're scheduling it for Tuesday. Is that correct? Yeah. There you go. So, so Sophie's uh, amazing. Um, she, she's got a, a few tricks up her sleeve and, and really a stable voice around this. I will say we are active. We are open. We're investing. We put it on LinkedIn literally last night and I got 200 likes on it in the last 24 hours. Yeah, look, we've, we've done 120 immigration filings the last five years. It's 100% success. Wow. We, we are here to invest as a friends and family round in immigrant entrepreneurs. And if your options are underwater, and you're thinking about what else you want to do, start a company right here. Here's my plug. I uh, know, no, everyone got their plug in at once. It was good. Uh, now we can, uh, I appreciate that. When we collect them all in one we place. We sponsor I, ourselves. That's how it works. That's the new ad market <laughs> that we're in. 
Let's do one more thing before we talk about Airbnb's possible direct listing, because I want to make sure we touch on this. Danny wrote something this week about startups and when they announced their funding. We talk about it a lot on the show because we're always dealing with time lag. But Danny uh, said, don't be stupid. Announce them now. And I, I want the 30 second synopsis, Danny, about why you wrote that, because a lot of founders listen to the show and they might want to hear what you were thinking. Well, I think for a lot of PR strategists, you know, the, the advice to, they're giving to founders today is hold off, right? There's so much news, so much of it is coronavirus, so much of it is negative, that a funding round is one of the few opportunities you have as a startup founder to sort of set the scene for your own company. Like it's one of the ways we cover companies, right? Is like you come to us with a funding announcement, we talk about it. That said, you know, what people want, what employees need to hear, what customers need to hear, what other investors need to hear is that fundings are happening, right? That people have money on the balance sheet, that there's stability going on. And so even though it might be more strategic to wait a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months to get this done, I do think it's really important to get out there and say, hey, we actually raised money last month. Like, look at HashiCorp. We raised Mm -hmm. $175 million. They could have waited two months to actually get that number out, but they got it out today to make sure that their customers knew and their employees knew that they were well capitalized. And so my message is, if you do have that funding kind of waiting in the background and you're just sort of waiting for a a window to to get it out there, it's not going to come. The coronavirus story is going to be here a long period of time. There's not going to be some magical period in which all the startup announcements are going to, you know, percolate to the top, so to speak. I appreciated this hot take, especially um, after I... Hot take! Oh my God. I, so well, I thought that's it was a, a hot take. I thought I it was a hot take. I worked so hard. I worked days on that article. <laughs> he spent 17 minutes crapping that out. Don't give him any extra credit. But on that note, I so one company kind of had a one foot in, one foot out approach, which I also want to talk about. I'm not trying to on this company. It's called Just Egg. And they kind of create like a, I am going to butcher this, but they do create like an alternative egg and meat product. And they announced pretty low key that they raised capital, expanded globally partnerships and added a Coca-Cola executive to their team. And when I asked for the total dollar amount, they said that they didn't want to share that due to the pandemic around us. And I thought that that was I don't know, that was definitely a a pause. I've been seeing tweets about people sending announcements. I hadn't had that happen. So then that was kind of another approach I saw rise of just sharing it, but being a little more cautious on Sharing good news during a bad news cycle. Yeah, I got I got yelled at by like at least two or three PR people yeah. by email that was like, hey, <laughs> you tweets, know, we're not just tweets, it's not just strategic. It's also we're trying not to like gloat at the time that there's a lot of suffering going on. But, you know, again, it's an economic depression. It's coming like the numbers are there. I believe Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan have declared it an official economic recession. And so like there's no good news coming for months, right? right. We might not have more yeah. good news by the end of the year. So at some point, you got to move forward. You got to send a strong, positive signal that we're going to be here. We're going to survive. No, I'm, I was about to say, isn't there uh, an old saying that be a big fish in a small pond versus a small fish in a big pond? And if you can, if most financing rounds are, are, are slowing down, why not show it some strength? Because again, you said it before, Danny, customers want to hear this. Your employees want to hear this, right? There's, there's something really fundamental about people staying in the lanes that they're good at and showing that they can execute when they do that, that other people need to rally behind. And so I, I, I just don't understand why you would be half in, half out or not do it at all. Uh, that, that just seems like I wouldn't go on and do a massive PR campaign on New York Times or Wall Street Journal and like that's not a good idea. I get it, and they they won't pick it up. But if you can announce that you that you will be around for the next eighteen or twenty four months, yeah, people like feeling good. 
Well, I think there's also a positive externality to a lot of this good news, right? It's not just good for your own company. It also sends a signal to other investors that, look, there are literally VCs that are open. They're not just saying that on Twitter and a bunch of boring tweets. They are actually writing checks, right? Things are being wired. Life is moving forward. And I think that that's a message that a lot of people want to hear right now. Yes. But for whom it is not possibly moving forward is Airbnb. <laughs> How's that for a segue, Danny? <laughs> that was a very efficient segue for sure. Thank you. I was going for the, I was going for tautness and curtness. All right. So here's the thing. Airbnb has promised this year to go public. Everyone thinks via a direct listing. They made this announcement, I think it was September 19th. And then, uh, well, their entire market, as Tosh pointed out earlier, uh, went away. And they are intelligently, I think, refunding a lot of customers who can't make their trips uh, to certain places they were going to stay. But certainly their growth has tapered, I think it's fair to say. The company was shooting for 25% growth in Q1 of this year per Bloomberg. They just came off of Q4, in which they had much higher negative EBITDA than they did the year before, up about 90%. Uh, and so they're in a bit of a fix because if your growth is slowing and your unprofitability is rising, you are not worth as much as you were. So I did some thinking and I want to get people's feedback about this. So here's my thought. Q1, toilet, throw it away. Q2, recession, as Danny pointed out, throw it away. Q3, rebound, Okay, cool. You go public on the strength of your Q3 recovery. But then there's an election in November and everyone hates elections and IPOs. So then when do you go public in 2020 if you're Airbnb? And I could not figure this out and they weren't happy with what I wrote down. But I'm kind of curious, does anyone have a, a, a guess as to what Airbnb might do to meet its promise to go public and also live through the catastrophe that's currently going on because I don't have anything. Yeah, two things, Alex. Well, one, I wanted to give you a shout out for your kicker in that Airbnb story. It was Airbnb should have gone public in 2018 when it was still profitable. Loved that singer. Number two, I also would, can you also take a second to explain why people don't like IPOs and um, elections in the same time period? It's an uncertainty point. And, and Danny is going to add to this and, and improve my answer. But here, the general point is you want markets that are solid, steady and predictable. Political elections tend to be an unstable event that brings a lot of uncertainty to the market. This lowers investors' risk tolerance. They're less interested in growth-oriented shares, companies that are unprofitable. What they want is you know, rock-solid dividends and utilities because they're less move-abouty in dangerous times. This, this year has a pandemic, a recession, and Donald Trump 2.0. I mean, that is not a recipe for and, and the Olympics, which, which the Japanese government has said repeatedly it's, it, they're going to be held this summer. Well, they won't be. That's wrong. That's just not... <laughs> so, so I love putting this like... out. This was just doubled down this morning, actually. They said 100% the Olympics are going to happen. But, you know, uh, so that may be the lifeline that Airbnb needs. Maybe they just take over the entire Olympic village and, and off you go. But I think I think the reality is um, I, I think Airbnb has to make a very quick choice. And I, I'm sure that they're starting to discuss this, which is do they hold on to their employees? Do they kind of hold down the ship and try to, to go down, you know, over the next couple of months and ride it out? Or do they take quick and efficient action? You know, we're seeing this in the restaurant industry. We're seeing this with a lot of retail. We're obviously seeing this with a lot of the airlines. Delta, American, United have all cut 70, 80% of their flights. Flight crews are being furloughed. And I think the question is, is Airbnb is at the center of travel, right? They're, they can't be making any money. OpenTable today said that there's, I think they said in some major cities, there were zero reservations made at some restaurants, right? It's not, it's not down 20%, it's down 100%. And so, you know, I do think they have cash. Uh, Alex, remind me, they have some cash on the balance sheet. Two billion. They have two billion. That's a long time. But, you know, they also lost 276 million in the last quarter, and that was with full revenues and full growth. So, so the question is, is like, if you take out all the marketing that was going on at the time, that's probably a good chunk of it, to be frank. Like, that's a huge part of the equation is you get rid of the marketing cost because there's no demand anyway. 
and maybe you make some some slim cuts to the, the employee base and you try to make things work. But I think it really comes down to is it, is it a six or nine month horizon or two years? If it's two years, Airbnb is in a really tough pickle. Yeah, that that's kind of my read as well. If it's not very, very soon, it's got to be 2020, late 2021, but they've had a full year to recover. But before we wrap, guys, for a little bit over time, I want to put our guest in the hot seat and ask, when are you raising your next fund and how big will it be? Wow, Alex, I love it. Wow, that's that's a good question. So uh, SEC law is prohibiting me from talking about this publicly. Um, I'm well-trained. Um, yeah, the media training kicks in every now and then. There you go. Um, look, I think the reality is, is we we have about 20 to 30 more companies to invest in out of this fund. And I think um, that's going to be a very fun year, year and a half, maybe two years for us. Um, and so we're going to focus on that. We're going to focus on capturing the talent that comes out of the market. We are having an all-hands meeting today, talk to our team about how we want to be uh, focusing our effort on new businesses, not existing um, businesses, uh, because we think a lot of great companies are going to emerge out of these ashes. Um, and they may stay in stealth for six months. Uh, you said one or two quarters of before we're out of the recession. It could be longer. But end of the day, there's, there's going to be businesses that, do, that are created. And so we're going to focus on that. Um, and the market will tell us. I mean, if we see what we're seeing continue to grow, we're going to be forced to get back into market. Um, but I think right now we're going to be very mindful of, of people shoring up their, their portfolios. There's a lot of rebalancing going on in the institutional world right now because the public markets have literally changed dramatically. And their ratio of private to public has also shifted significantly because their public equities have gone down so much. So we're, we're going we're gonna to hang tight. Um, we're going to work with our existing LP base, invest in these 20 to 30 companies, and, and try, to, try to be the signal others follow. Guys, thank you a lot for having me on the, on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun uh, being in four different locations. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone's got different backgrounds. I see a lot of board games in one, a lot of books in another. I think I have more insight into what you guys really do when you're not writing news. Um, so thank you very much for having me. And it's a, it's a wild time, but let's stay positive and, and I think good things will happen out of the private sector.